0: What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy, and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy.
1: Yes indeed. Welcome back or welcome to What on Earth, a monthly business discussion on Australia's transition to net zero and post-carbon. And what would do we need and what we need to do? Uh, to understand the broader issues around these issues and how they impact our business. My name is James Scotland. I am the General Manager of Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group and joining me each episode are my two amigos. They're going to di- discuss and dissect the issues uh, as only they can. Uh, I'm talking of course of t- firstly Tenet Reid, the Head of Environment and Energy for the Australian Industry Group. Hello Tenet. G'day James, good to be with you again. It's good to have you back. You were missing an action last, uh, last time. I'll ask you about that in a second. And Paul Hudson, the principal consultant of Paul Hudson Advisory and newly appointed CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen uh, Corporative Research Centre. Paul is well known to many of you as a business and industry commentator and as the chair of the Q, uh, Queensland Manufacturing Institute. Hello, Paul. Hi, James, and welcome back, Tennant. How was the Middle Kingdom, Tennant? You're in China. Is that your first visit?
0: Uh, It was my third trip to China, but my first one for work. I'd previously gone for a couple of uh, school trips uh, with my child. Uh, We went to Nanjing. We had some uh, great feasts. Uh, It was lovely. This time it was work, uh, and I was there as part of the high-level dialogue uh, between Australia and China, which had been revived after a more than shaky few years in the relationship. Uh, and this was part of the the broader resumption and, and rewarming of relations, and it was it was successful in that it was a lot of going back and forth for like one and a half days of actual program, uh, but uh, there were a lot of conversations between eminent Australians and eminent Chinese and me, uh, and. A lot of topics on there. Um, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about it was, to, to me, was the sense of the um, the change in the uh, view of China's growth model inside China. And obviously, there's a there's an economic debate there. There's different views. It's it's not just uh, a a monoculture. Um, but one of the potent views there is that the infrastructure and construction, especially of apartments and labour intensive manufacturing growth model that they have had, can't be pushed any further, has to change. Uh, and one view of what it has to change, too, is uh, focused on domestic consumption rather than investment. And on high value added, high technology manufacturing, including clean tech, but not just clean tech. And if that view prevails, and particularly the first part of it, uh, that's a huge change for China, a huge change for the world economy, got some pretty big implications for Australia uh, if infrastructure investment has, has basically topped out as a contributor to GDP growth. In China, then, um, one hundred billion dollars a year of iron ore exports may not be one hundred billion dollars a year of iron exports, iron ore exports, um, and and we'll have some adjusting to do. And and you know we've been through adjustments before. This is probably not going to be a, um, a crisis type adjustment, but a, a a lot to adjust to. So fascinating trip.
1: You know, uh, in, well, whilst you were there, Paul and I recorded our last episode and we talked about the Pilbara and, and what a, a, a massive contribution it makes to the Australian economy currently and, and probably in the future. Paul, what's your reaction to, to what Tennis just said, that there could be a slowdown in infrastructure building in, in, uh, in China? I think it's, um,
2: look, it's, it's been coming, but I, I always find it interesting when people talk about China's growth rates. Um, and But the Chinese economy has been growing, so to sustain the same amount of demand requires a lower growth rate when you've got a larger economy. Um, um, not a, an award-winning economist by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, 5% of a bigger number could be um, um, bigger than 10% of a smaller number, right? So. Um, so I think Chinese yep. demand will continue. And then
1: there's still plenty of companies that wouldn't mind 5% growth.
2: Well, that's right. And and maybe, I mean, they're not getting 5% growth at the moment. but uh, And they need to domestically, no. I would have thought, right? Uh, they've, they've got domestic challenges that's going to be, they're going to require to have continual growth. Um, so I, I don't think their demand is going to shut off too much. Um, but I think we do need to think about diversifying the Australian economy as much as we can. Um, I think that's what most of the rest Mm -hmm. of the world is doing anyway, in a a time of increased geopolitical instability, economic uncertainty, and trying to plow through the energy transition. um, There's a a sense of kind of not putting all your eggs in one basket.
1: Yeah. A change in economic conditions is an interesting thought. and, And that brings me to our first issue that I thought we could discuss. It seems like these politicians around the world are getting skittish about the short-term pain of the transition. We know the pain is going to be tough, uh, and if you're in power now, you worry about the pain now. Uh, the UK Prime Minister has announced that he will probably push the transition down the road, stretch out the targets. And the complexity here is that the UK has laws in place regarding these carbon emission targets that say effectively, "Well, it's got to be done by the next date, uh, you know, 2050." So if you push it out, the pain is going to be further. And I guess the political view is, yeah, but it won't be my problem. That's certainly been sort of an approach of politicians around the world for the last 20 years. Business groups and many others have said, this is crazy because it'll just add further cost and pain down the road. So it's not supported by a large section of influencers, including business. Are we likely to see this elsewhere, this idea of pushing the transition down to someone else's problem? And look,
2: I mean, the energy transition is always going to be tough. We're trying to do... In a short period of time, uh, uh, almost a completely uh, complete redesign and implementation of the, the global energy system, right? The, what I think is a challenge is that hesitation will not be the right outcome. So waxing and waning between action and inaction uh, is not going to be uh, a successful strategy. Now, I know that the UK recently put out a tender, I think, for a request for tender or an auction for offshore wind and the offshore wind proponents all kind of got, well, either got together or, or decided not to bid for that. Um, and I I suspect that's part of the issue here is, is how do you manage short term pricing and what people want to pay with what what's happening in the cost environment? We've got a, an inflationary environment, we've got supply chain restrictions. Uh, we can't just assume that the costs, even of renewable energy generation and batteries and EVs, are just going to continue to come down, um, uh, and certainly in the short term. So I can kind of understand, but I also think people are needing boldness, and business and investment capital markets need boldness. Um, I think courage. Leads to courage from others. So it's disappointing to see people kind of uh, doing a bit of a U turn because that won't actually help with attracting business and industry and investment. And I don't think it'll actually help in giving the community confidence either. The government, uh, the community wants governments to do what's needed, I think. And sometimes realizing that that might be not in the short term what I want, but, uh, but we, we elect governments to, to try and do both. If you try, well, sorry, if you try and do both, you, you can sometimes just end up uh, 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 sort of stuck, I guess, where no one's really happy with what you're doing. Yeah, and
0: uh, announcements out of the UK government of Rishi Sunak, there's a few elements to them and a few uh, different things that may be going on here. So they have um cancelled a few things that they they weren't actually doing or likely to do, so they've they've, for instance, ruled out a meat tax that there was there was no meat tax, nobody was proposing a meat tax um, They have ruled out uh, forcing households to sort all their waste into seven different bins, which also wasn't actually going to happen. And they've uh, pushed back by five years from 2030 to 2035, the date at which internal combustion engine light vehicles would no longer be able to be sold in the UK. And that's a real change uh, and a very significant one. And some of the car businesses, most of the car businesses, I think, have complained about that uh, bitterly uh, because they were investing on the basis that uh, there was going to be a – definite change in market conditions in 2030, and uh, those plans have been upset. Not all of them have been uh, equally upset, but some of them very much. And they've uh, made some substantial changes to proposals around um, home insulation, uh, which included uh, a a change to um, the the standards for rental properties that was going to require some substantial spending by landlords in the UK. And and landlords seem to have been quite unhappy with it. And uh, it may be it costs to them that Rishi Sunak had in mind when he was talking about uh, moderating some of the costs of the transition. Um, but you know, there's there's a couple of things going on with all this. One is that they are kind of cleaning up after Boris Johnson, who was who was not a details man and made an awful lot of um, big claims about how easy it was being green and how much the UK was gonna be able to do, and it wasn't really gonna cost anybody anything. Uh, and then he he left the scene and uh some of his commitments are much harder to achieve than than he said and maybe than he understood uh, and there's also the element of like a a government that's gone through a lot of tumult run through a lot of prime ministers uh, lately um many things are not working the UK is a bit on the skids in general these days uh, and they're looking for something to uh, re-earn some internal uh, consent and coherence, um, find some support from their their uh, base uh, and uh, also to – like there have been individual issues like the ultra-low emissions vehicle zone uh, in London um, that that have – seemed to be quite annoying and vote animating uh, for for some in the electorate. So they're just like they're trying a bunch of stuff. uh, And in this case, what they're trying is moving a bit away from the very consensus place uh, that uh, climate policy had been in to something where there's more brand differentiation between the conservatives and Labor.
1: Yeah, coming back to politics, doesn't it? Yeah. Brand separation. The other part that might be playing into this, and it's uh, came out of the climate. Oh, I probably said that wrong. Climate Center for Energy Policy at, at I think Harvard or one of the big uh, American universities is that the European investors uh, are pulling away from the the oil companies and not investing in the oil companies uh, because of you know perceived risk or uh, assumed risk. Uh, and that meant the Americans are going in there and they've pushed the share price back up again. Because, But now they've got a lot of US investors who are not as committed to, to climate policy as um, the European investors are. So the European investors, of course, have been pushing ESG. Uh, the Americans are not as big on ESG as, as that. Is, would that be changing the equation at all, the fact that they're not getting pressure from the very large companies? I know that Shell has actually pushed out their targets a, uh, a bit as well. Yeah, well it like it's a
0: it's a very contested space these days and uh, the pushback uh, the the active hostility to ESG from um a, a number of uh, the um United States uh, constituent states particularly Texas and and efforts to bar um e s g active companies from um participating in government procurement or um other um advantages in in texas
1: that's um, just weird it's it is
0: strange like there's there's elements of e s g that have been a bit fluffy and there's there's parts of it that have been about well actually there's a broader range of risks to investors. Money and we need to take those risks into account to exercise fiduciary duties correctly, it's it's just a bit weird to insist that uh, investors manage their money worse.
1: Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Mind-boggling. Um, we, we move on to the next issue is uh, about the price of of energy. We haven't talked about that for a while. Um, there was a, a graph that's on, I think on LinkedIn I saw it, that suggests that our energy prices across the board and across the states in Australia are starting to climb again. What's the latest? Uh, I'll start with tenant. What's the latest in what our electricity prices are going to be? What's our gas prices looking like? What's our business effects?
0: Yeah, so the um, the energy price story is is a bit complicated because of the lags between... Uh, what happens in wholesale markets and futures markets and what is visible to like retail customers uh, because very, very few energy users are actually directly involved in the wholesale markets. Uh, and the things that we see... Uh, on our bills are really the product of a, a blend of what was happening in financial markets around energy over the last one and two and even to some extent three years uh the the, the contracts that we're sold represent uh, energy retailers hedging and um assembling a portfolio of energy contracts to to cover their needs and they do that over a long period so when we see wholesale, prices spike incredibly as they did last year, uh, that has less immediate impact on you and me, and yet its, it's impacts are smeared over a, a longer period. So we are still seeing and feeling what was happening last year. Wholesale prices are way down in electricity from where they were last year, and the futures prices have for, for the next couple of years are much lower than they were last year. Uh, But we're not feeling that relief all in one in one go. And I don't know how relieving it's going to feel when we do feel it, uh, because where prices have fallen to is still fairly high by historic standards. Uh, It's it's much better than 2022. But uh, I, yeah, I I think it's still going to feel mediocre at best. Gas prices, it's a similar story. Like they, they are uh, way down from last year. Globally, they're way down from last year. Uh, by local standards, they're down to levels that are not, not fantastic. And uh, retail gas price offers are still, like to, to AR group members, they've been saying, or oh, they're still getting offered things like $20 a gigajoule. Uh, when the wholesale price is theoretically capped at $12 a gigajoule, uh, and the uh, the his- still in living memory, the historic average price was three to four dollars a gigajoule. So it doesn't—it's it, better than it could be, but it doesn't feel great.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's the what's the feeling from sort of the manufacturing uh, sector, Paul? Have you, have you had any feedback as to what's happening on the ground with with uh, businesses and energy prices and nervousness or?
2: I think energy prices just keep going up, don't they? I mean, uh, certainly I can see that with just my own uh, consumption, uh, you know, electricity, um, probably our bill's not going up because we're becoming more energy efficient and we're probably uh, switching our energy consumption to when the sun's shining onto our solar panels um, each day as much as possible. But the, the kilowatt hour rate's going up. There's more charges coming onto it. Um, feed-in rates are coming down, um, all sorts of things are happening there. And then you look at the cost of putting fuel into your car, if you still have an internal combustion engine, that, that uh, the, the, the uh, trend towards EB seems to be gathering pace. But if you're doing that, uh, you're never looking at less than $2 a, a litre, it seems to me now. Um, and we actually heard that recently that petrol prices are likely to go up again. But they don't seem to come down before they go back up again. So, um, so the only way is up, I think.
0: And the exchange rate is hurting us on um, on those globally linked energy sources. Uh, which, um, yeah, uh, again, who who knows what's going to happen with exchange rates? But uh, if we do see a, a a period of slowness from China and then a um, a different mix to uh, their economy on the other side of that, one of the things you'd expect to see out of that is, is structurally different exchange rates in Australia, which, which might mean that the, the Aussie dollar doesn't go as far. Uh, it might mean exporters have uh, an easier time of it, uh, but
1: um, for petrol prices, uh, yikes. We are seeing uh, an increase in uh, electric vehicle sales, as Paul said uh, recent sales per month has had this had uh, electric vehicles at around 7.5 percent of total sales and there's been reports that say that 5 percent is the tipping point once you get past five percent the the market accelerates to this new this new product uh, and I'm a bit of a, a sports nerd especially at this time of year uh, and I've been watching a, a lot of sport recently and the amount of electric vehicle ads uh, are during sport which is the high viewership. Mm-hmm. Suggests that it's just going to keep happening. Um, I I was talking to Ross Durango from the Electric Vehicle um, Council recently. He had a policy there uh, in preparation for a, another podcast, uh, and he was saying that they expect there's a lot more charges uh, being being rolled out across Australia. Uh, and he raised two points. I'm interested in your thoughts. One is that everyone says, "Yeah, but how I can't buy an electric vehicle because there's no." free charges around the place. Mm. And he says, even with the left, with an internal combustion engine, if you're driving from point A to point B, you check to make sure you've got enough fuel. And if you don't have enough fuel, you check to make sure there's a service station. They're not everywhere. I mean, if you're driving down the New Highway in New South Wales, you've got to manage that. And the second one was, uh, we don't go to shopping centres to recharge our phones. So we shouldn't have to expect it to recharge our cars at um, as, as, as shopping centres, you know, there might be a few emergency ones there, but basically we'll charge our cars at night. That's mm-hmm. where it's going to basically happen, and we may do it at work, but uh, it's coming. So we haven't addressed this issue for a while. We're now getting into the tipping point, electric vehicles are coming into Australia. So we're going to have to see uh, apartment buildings start installing um, chargers, people that buy an electric vehicle have to buy chargers, and we're going to see this this peak in electricity. Are we ready for it? What's the story? Have we got charges? Have we got the, the electricity? Um, and what's it going to do to prices? Yeah, look, I think we'll get ready for it, James. Um, um,
2: I'm, I'm sure we probably don't want to talk about particular companies, but I mean, I, I, I actually, could you believe, drove my first EV on the weekend, um, and it's it was phenomenal. In fact, my wife and I were driving it, and our sense was, this doesn't feel much like a different, like a, a, a Different experience, right? Um, but it was a brilliant ride. Just, in a, um, just
1: interrupt you for a second, when I was when I was talking to uh, Ross from the Electric Vehicle Council, I said, are you going to take away all of our pleasure of going out for a weekend drive and hitting the V8 going up a mountain and having the roar of the V8 underneath our, our feeder? You're going to take away all our pleasure. And he said, you know what you do? Go for a drive. Just go and hire a car and and, and drive. if you drive an electric vehicle, you'll fall in love with it.
2: Yeah, well, this particular manufacturer had what they were terming Australia's largest test drive, um, and there were right across the country lots and lots of sites, uh, lots and lots of vehicles. And I think this is the thing that's really changed, right, is that you've actually got now um, the supplies coming. And in fact, this particular company uh, just last week, I think, opened their first showroom in Sydney where people are can go in, buy an electric vehicle and drive it out. Now, that's that that's a first, I think, because I think one of the problems that's happened is that people have been saying, oh, yes, I'd like an electric vehicle. And they've said, well, we'll put you down on the waiting list and you might see one in 12 months or 18 months.
1: Sure. That's,
2: that's changing, right? And so in the first half of this year, I think in Australia, I hear that we sold as many electric vehicles as we did in all of last year. And one thing Australian consumers are really good at is taking up new technology, whether it's iPhones um, and smartphones or whatever it is. And I think I think that I think it's on. Um, the fact that now mm. we're getting a constant supply, and we started out talking about China. Well, that's where most of our cars are gonna come, electric vehicles are gonna come from. Yeah. And their their demand Absolutely. then for the critical minerals and other minerals that Australia supplies, uh, regardless of what's happening in their in their environment, uh, in their local uh, economy, is going to uh, continue unabated. And in fact it's probably gonna ramp up now.
1: Yeah. yeah. A different part of the economy will we'll, we'll grow away from other parts, slows tenant. So at uh, with- when I was in Beijing recently, it
0: seemed like uh, on my highly unscientific observations from outside the window of uh, the the car taking me to and from the airport, it seemed like half the cars on the streets of Beijing were electric vehicles, uh, and at you know six and a half percent or whatever it is of new car sales in australia, we've we've still got a way to go before we are catching up uh, to uh, other places including China um but there's there's no doubt that the global automotive sector is going through a huge change and the acceleration particularly of chinese supply and chinese demand for evs is a, is a very big deal uh, there has been this massive surge of um ev exports from china there's there's concern in europe about uh, european car makers getting uh, overtaken uh, in uh, market penetration by uh, Chinese ones, I think we, we're having a little uh, maybe uh, nostalgic uh, rerun of uh, how people felt in the 1980 s about the Japanese car industry, uh, but uh, with a with a different flag uh, involved. Um, so there's a huge amount to be gained from all that like the The explosion of um, different makes and models uh, coming out of many makers, but, but particularly these Chinese uh, makers, is just it's a good thing for consumers. Um, we it really, really ramps up the urgency on us getting our act together in terms of the integration of all these vehicles that are coming at us, uh, because the difference between uh, the cost of an electricity system that integrates EVs well and the cost of an electricity system that integrates them badly is a lot of capital expenditure in network augmentation especially uh, that would be noticeable and painful if we screw it up. So to Paul's point about when uh, when are we going to be charging – sorry, no, uh, James, you said uh, when are we going to be charging them uh, – we really need as much as possible of the um, the kilowatt hours to, to charge those cars to be sourced in the middle of the day when we've got um, solar energy coming out of our ears, we've got minimum demand problems uh, in uh, lots of bits of the grid, we have underutilised distribution networks, uh, if, we, if we can charge them, then we are golden. And if we are charging them at 5 to 7 p.m. on a weeknight, we are stuffed,
2: uh, is my highly sophisticated <laughs> take.
1: Very nice term, this.
2: Yeah, look, I was going to add, I think, I think we're going to have to get a wriggle on because I get the sense that people are just going to start buying EVs. Uh, they're not going to now wait for yeah. infrastructure charging stations or the like. I mean, the discussion my wife and I had was around, well, you know, we were working out how we would charge it. We'll probably put in three-phase power um, and we would, you know, we, we weren't thinking about, well, where are the charging stations locally? Uh, because I think part of it is the ability yeah. to do it yourself, right? The ability to take control of that.
0: Mm. And
2: mm. even, uh, but what it means is things like electricity storage, because as Tennant said, we're, 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 we're likely to going to put it like, like people do with their phone, right? They put it on charge overnight. Um, and that's gonna be a real challenge because particularly with range anxiety and the behavioral changes that people are gonna not want to have their EV sitting there in their driveway on a low charge, they're gonna want it almost fully charged, right? I mean, that's how people feel now. Um, but as I think I might've said before with my internal combustion engine car, If the fuel light's on and it's sitting in the driveway, ah, it doesn't matter. But I reckon with EVs, people are gonna want it at least 80% charged. And uh, they'll be happy to take those electrons whenever they come, regardless whether they're green or black or gray or anything in between.
1: Couple of factors here though. The stats, and I think, Tennant, you talked about this in a a podcast many episodes ago. The stats are that people don't use their cars as much as they think they do. They actually sit in the garage a lot.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, so some friends of mine uh, bought an EV last year and their um, their practice is that they charge it uh, once a week when they do the shopping. Uh, they charge it at the supermarket um, during the, the day and then they just sort of coast down the charge the rest of the week because they're inner urban people who don't drive all that much. Of course, there are people uh, who need to drive further distances or, or use their cars in different ways, and they are going to need fast charging, or they are going to need a much more frequent cycle. And so, it, you know, it's different strokes for different folks.
1: If you've got commercial vehicles and you're running a business, you'll you'll be charging your vehicles up overnight, most likely, and quite possibly at, at the at the work facility. So there's going to be a load from from business uh on electricity but the other thing that's, that we need to factor in is that micro mobility is now a big deal you mm. uh, it's not just cars anymore back in the 50s we went with the the big american cars the ones known as yank tank and gas guzzlers in the 70s we went for utes and panel vans uh, the trend now very much even for businesses is in this micro mobility of electric scooters electric uh, you know look, look at australia post with their little you know tripods running around what are they called
0: we're maybe um, exploring uh, both uh, ends of the, the range of extremes in mobility because, uh, absolutely, um, scooters and um, all kinds of little, little transport systems with batteries in them are big. And then on the, on the car side of things, I don't, the, the yank tanks of old would probably look like Morris Miners compared to the kind of cars you see on the road these days.
1: <laughs> My goodness, they're big, aren't they?
2: Mm. Yeah, that was something I couldn't have predicted, I think, particularly, I mean, I live in inner city, Brisbane, and the amount of massive cars that take up even more than the car park, for people who aren't working out on the road, they're not out in regional areas, they're not even carrying stuff, has blown my mind, actually, um, because we're looking to downsize Mm. our car to a smaller car, uh, because it's much easier to get around, it's much more fuel efficient and the like. But uh, the number of really really large SUVs and Utes um, uh, is yeah, extraordinary um, at a time when uh, when you think people would be going smaller with mobility. so you're right uh, we, we're going to electric scooters and electric bikes and you know people looking at walking more and all that type of thing but then some of our just domestic cars are have been getting bigger not smaller I would have thought everyone everything would look like a Suzuki Swift or something or the smart cars remember the smart cars? Yes.
0: Yes, well, so one of the things, one of the implications of that that trend is that uh, battery materials demand is going up even faster than you would think from the number of electric vehicles being sold, because the size of EVs is also increasing, uh, and a lot of these new models are, you know, it's a it's a long way from the ten years ago when the Nissan Leaf was uh, an iconic electric car which is like you know just a modest uh, little um little small vehicle uh perfectly fine it was the first electric vehicle that i drove um but the uh the um the the cyber truck from uh tesla is just one of the explosion of um mega vehicles that have got batteries in them. And you need a lot of stuff to put in those batteries. So nice work for miners.
1: Yeah, and, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? That it is actually considered to be mining, whereas uh, other parts of the supply chain, other parts of the economy would say, there's just as many critical minerals above ground now than below ground. So we need to be extractive rather than, than that. Moving on from, uh, from that, by staying with the price of electricity, the Victorian... Uh, uh, an article in The Guardian has said that gas connections will be banned in new homes and government buildings in Victoria from next year. The announcement has been backed by environmental groups in the property and construction sector, but the opposition has warned the change will increase household energy bills fueled by higher demand for electricity. the Victorian government announced the major energy reform on Friday, oh, a few weeks ago, uh, as part of its plan to reach net zero by 2045 so you know they're taking steps to reach uh zero, as suggested by both of you earlier in this podcast Uh, but the opposition is saying it's going to come at a huge cost what's your feeling and what's the actual statistics in your world tenant
0: ah well uh it's it's a it's a complex reform that people have got all kinds of different feelings about uh so I mean this this change is uh is a is a big one for people and businesses involved in the current supply chain for residential gas use uh in Victoria but also nationally because Victoria is the biggest market for that stuff uh and so if you're selling gas uh, water heaters in New South Wales—you're still going to be heavily influenced by what is going on with the market in Victoria. So, you know, there's there's some some worries there. The main thing, though, is: do we do a good job of just like with the EV integration? Do we do a good job of household electrification of heat? Uh, because again, if you the, the the difference between doing it well and doing it badly is very large in terms of cost. And if you do do it well with highly efficient heat pumps uh, and with uh, appliances that are well concerted, you don't need to place much extra load uh, on the peak demand on the electricity system. Probably a bit, and especially if you're doing EVs at the same time, but not nearly as much as if. You're doing electric resistance water heaters, say, and uh, everybody's using them at peak times. So Victoria's really, really got to get its act together on this and and the the national uh, scene as well. Uh, Will it send electricity prices up? Well, if we do it badly, the cost of the grid would go up. If we do it well, the cost of the grid uh, per unit of energy consumed could go down. Uh, So no reason to give up, but also no reason to relax.
1: So we're talking about a, a lot of electricity required. Is this good for the hydrogen industry pool? Um,
2: look, it depends on which type of hydrogen you're looking at. I mean, um, there's and also the the bet that you're taking here on whether electrification or as the gas industry would argue is that they will go to a zero emission renewable gas that will go into domestic heating and and, and cooking.
1: Um, As part of that substitute, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it depends on which way you look at it, whether it's uh, it's gas-based hydrogen, which is most of the hydrogen produced today, or whether you're looking at electricity-derived uh, hydrogen, which is green hydrogen, which is where I think um, uh, the, the future will be. But it all comes back to electricity. So we've talked about electric vehicles, we've talked about potentially, and this is, I think, almost more of a Victorian issue around domestic gas, uh, for heating and cooking. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of Victorian homes have gas. It's probably less likely in other states and territories. But we're all still talking about the same electricity and decarbonising that. So the grids, the, the amount of electricity demands going up. Uh, we're not yet seeing, I think, the renewable energy generation going up and certainly storage going up that we probably need to accommodate all of these demands that are coming, and that's even before you get to green hydrogen. So if there's going to be competition for scarce green electrons, then the only way will be up in terms of pricing. So we really do need to uh, look at what are the roadblocks for getting much more renewable energy into our electricity system. Yeah. And
0: uh, one other aspect of that is the question of... um how much new renewable generation do we need to build to meet the needs of uh, of electrified households? And, and how much more do we need to build if, if we were going to go down a path of um, green hydrogen for household needs? Uh, and it, it does depend on what assumptions you make about how well we do either job, but very dodgy back of the envelope spreadsheeting uh would suggest that uh for a good electrification scenario uh versus a green hydrogen for homes scenario um you'd need about a just about a third of the new generation for the electrification scenario versus the the green hydrogen scenario um partially because of inefficiencies in um, in electrolysis but mostly because uh heat pumps are like one of the few kinds of magic allowed by the laws of thermodynamics uh they're able to Take a lot more energy from their surrounding environment than is needed to do the taking process. Uh, so they are more than 100% efficient. Um, in, in good conditions, they can be 300 or more percent efficient. Uh, and that's, um, that is hard to beat uh, unless you do it really badly and you don't, in fact, use very efficient appliances, in which case, um, you, you could have, like, at the, in the worst case, you could have parity. In the amount of um, new generation required, so given how um, how grumpy a lot of people in regional Victoria uh, are at the moment about new infrastructure being built near them, um, the the less we need to build, the better. We're still going to have to build like a lot of stuff, but um, if we can avoid pushing it too
1: far, uh, that's great. We need to build a lot of stuff. Uh, in uh, a few weeks ago, Paul and I were at the uh, Hydrogen Connect. I think the name of the conference was, and we were talking about hydrogen. Just picking up on what we we're just discussing, I was in a, a group talking about the, uh, the gas connections and the turning off of, of uh, gas uh, in new houses. And people from North Australia were saying, "What's the issue? I just don't understand what they're talking about." And when you talk about how much gas is used in the Southern states and the cold states uh, there's, a, there's a disconnect between the top and bottom of, of Australia, which is interesting, so sometimes we're talking about something we've got no idea about. but it's interesting we say about, about uh, victoria being uh, um, country Victoria being unhappy because that 's had a change in state governments and all sorts of things when they get unhappy and it's, uh, so it's, uh, you, you've got to keep Victoria happy. Uh, Paul, at the conference, uh, we, we were talking about hydrogen, the future of hydrogen, and I think you had some, some thoughts on, on what that means for all these issues of transition. Where are we at? So
2: I think for green hydrogen, um, and I was just uh, reflecting on that issue there, I think the, where, where we see the green hydrogen sector going is in the industrial applications, So uh, replacement of grey hydrogen in, in chemicals and then into the heavy the heavy mobility, uh, you know, long distance freight, um, and you know, particularly shipping, aviation, long distance road road, which is potentially more of an issue in Australia than it is in places like Europe. But uh, the storage is going to be the real question. How do we store uh, the electricity to be able to provide um, the greater electrification of areas that have been in the domestic gas sector? If we can't do that then there will be people looking at how they use gas infrastructure, I guess, to get that in. But we don't, I don't see it as a, uh, as a real issue. The challenge for green hydrogen, as it is for a lot of sectors, and I was asked this question actually at a, a forum in Newcastle last Thursday, which was, what do you see as the real roadblock? And the real roadblock for green hydrogen is the same as it is for a lot of these other electrification sectors, is how much renewable energy we get going. Um, there is a lot more capacity on the distribution networks. Um, particularly in the commercial and industrial space to get solar, PV in particular, and storage at the community level um, and some of these other areas. The residential area is going gangbusters. I think it's up to about a third of residential rooftops now have solar that's expected to double, I think, almost by the end of the decade. Uh, So we're getting getting plenty there, but it's some of the large-scale solar and wind and, and storage, particularly for industrial applications, um, and then it's also how we can, uh, we can get the commercial and industrial sector to embrace uh, renewable energy as well. Uh, understanding that there are split incentives there as well. So sometimes the building owner uh, will want to own the capital, but the, the benefits go to the tenant. And so who actually invests in it becomes uh, a real challenge. So um, so I think, mm. I think green hydrogen is still going to require a lot of renewable energy a huge amount of renewable energy, uh, particularly wind and solar. Yeah. And I think it's the, it's the storage aspect which is the real determining factor in some ways of about how much we might need a gas sector for domestic purposes and how much we might just uh, use things like green hydrogen into the industrial
1: sectors. I can uh, hear you furiously nodding your head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, I think... We, we need to be like loud and clear and repetitive on exactly what Paul was saying, that we are going to need a lot of electricity production for a hydrogen industry, whether that is a domestically oriented hydrogen industry or it's about making hydrogen intensive stuff for export like green iron or whether we're exporting uh, hydrogen or ammonia we will need stonkingly massive, eye-wateringly huge quantities of electricity for any significant quantity of, of hydrogen production. And so I, like that, that imposes a real discipline, or it should, on, on our thinking. People who are thinking, oh, you know, we'll, we'll make hydrogen with the, the, the spare electricity that would otherwise be dumped for the domestic system, No. <laughs> Yeah. We will not. You cannot make a transition-relevant quantity of hydrogen from what the rest of the economy doesn't need. Um, also, we really need some discipline about electricity costs um, because there are there are scenarios going around for, uh, say, from, from TransGrid. TransGrid have done some great work. I'm, I'm not having a go at TransGrid, but they released – A development plan for transmission in New South Wales recently, which had a look at a further horizon beyond 2030. What if they need a lot more electricity for, among other things, a green hydrogen industry? And they were looking at more than what the existing renewable energy zone plans could provide. Uh, So starting to run some numbers for a floating offshore wind industry in New South Wales, or a deep inland res near Broken Hill with a high-voltage direct current uh, transmission line to bring it back to the coast. And those things, as important as they could be for energy security, and probably costs are overestimated at the moment and we can surely do better, but those two things look absolutely incompatible on a cost basis with having any green hydrogen industry in New South Wales at all. if. If you want to make green hydrogen, you want the cheapest electricity you can find in the world, and you do not want to pay the costs of the reliability, the level of reliability that the rest of the grid is aiming for. And so, you know, if if your wholesale electricity cost is like in the region of $120 to $150 a megawatt hour, you don't get off the drawing board. So we, we've got to we've got to get real on scale and and on like keeping our nose to the grindstone on absolute cost reduction wherever we can find it.
1: Recently, much to my surprise, the uh, the story uh, or the, the conversation about carbon sequestration has come back. Uh, I remember we discussed this a year or so ago where there was many loud voices saying it's just not going to work, it's just a distraction, get back to the real uh, story of, of green hydrogen, green steel, green whatever. Is sequestration back on the agenda, or was uh, and is that because of what you've just been talking about? Uh,
2: look, I don't think it's, I mean, it's 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 on the agenda. I think it, I don't think it left the agenda, but it's it's not always easy and it's quite regionally specific. So, there are places where you can do carbon sequestration, uh, you can probably do that in some of the old gas basins and oil basins in the in the Bass Strait. Um, but you can't do it everywhere, right? So for some projects, it might be a viable alternative. But at the scale that we're looking to do it and the distributed nature of where we're going to do it, it's not going to be a viable option in many places, to be quite frank. So so it's a it's a useful thing to have because we're going to need a toolkit of options for decarbonization, but it's not going to work everywhere. It'll be very regionally specific uh, in terms of its even just technical viability, let alone its economic comparative uh, advantage.
0: Yeah, totally agree with that. And also I, I think the, we need to be specific about which flavours of sequestration we're talking about because there's carbon capture and storage on existing emissions sources that you're trying to just have emit less to the atmosphere. Uh, there's uh, carbon capture and storage where you are taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sticking it underground. Uh, There is biosequestration where you are growing um, new forests or or adding to the density of um, vegetation uh, on on land or or, um, improving the the amount of soil carbon. And all these things are a bit different to each other. Uh, And even within those categories, there's a lot of, difference between the cost and practicality of doing ccs on a uh, a gas well where you you have to separate the co2 that you're pulling out from that well along with the gas you have to separate it in order to have a saleable gas product uh, and so doing sequestration after that is a very different cost increment mm. to trying to put ccs on a coal fired power station which like the the last word I heard from people who were very keen on CCS was that um, that would add about a hundred dollars a megawatt hour to whatever the existing cost of operating that coal fired power station was for a for a retrofit. Um, I would say, um, we have uh, well, I would agree with the Climate Change Authority who had a report earlier this year where they said, look, um, sequestration. Taking from the air and putting in soil or underground looks like it's got some problems. Uh, you can only push the bio sequestration so far, and there's a durability problem, especially in a world of increasingly severe bushfires. Uh, the geo sequestration looks bloody expensive, but also there is no viable plan at this point to stay within one and a half degrees. That doesn't involve a boatload of sequestration on top of many boatloads of cutting underlying emissions. And so uh, it, it, it sucks, but we've got to make it work. I don't know if that's the, if that's the ringing endorsement of, of sequestration that CCS proponents
1: <laughs> wanted to hear, but it's, it's pretty powerful anyway. Let's finish up. Uh, before we go, I just want to go back to hydrogen. At the hydrogen conference, uh, our CEO, Lieutenant and, and my CEO, Ines Wilkes, spoke. Uh, Paul, you were there. Uh, and in his speech, he said um, uh, about hydrogen, shipping iron ore and coking coal to China for processing is cheap today. When China wants green steel, as their emission commitments eventually require, it may make more economic sense for both nations to process the ore to iron here. Rather than bearing the much higher cost investments of shipping it, of shipping the hydrogen to process it there. In other words, you know we've got the hydrogen here. Let's make make the uh, the steel here. Similar energy arbitrage opportunities exist in ammonia for fertiliser and explosives, alumina and aluminium. Does that ring true with you, Paul, or would you take an alternate view?
2: No, I think that's that's certainly true, and we're starting to see a lot of. Uh, Well, not a lot of, but we certainly see a few projects looking at using hydrogen in Australia to briquette uh, the iron ore um, and to send uh, a more semi-processed product into East Asian markets for steel manufacturing. And that will be done with the steel manufacturers themselves. So uh, that's people looking, stepping back, looking at the supply chain, staying with new inputs um, and a new operating model where's the best place to do some of this and i think we'll increasingly see that in the iron ore industry that there'll be more processing done in australia potentially using hydrogen here um, and then sending it offshore for further processing using just electricity or using uh, renewables Um, so uh, you know it's it's really healthy for people to be looking at that because the the danger is is that we look at the new potential solutions In a very blinkered way looking at the way we do it now and just changing Mm. the input and Mm. i don't think that's going to work i think it's really good for people to be uh, having a look at the whole value chain and working out where's best to do it um, and where are the advantages and that's uh, that's certainly happening in the steel space it'll happen in other areas as well Um, even in things like maritime bunkering of fuel and the production of various fuels where that happens where the where it's produced from Uh, where that's stored, where people are refueling. All of those things are up in the air, but people who have the existing market are not going to give up that market uh, lightly. So uh, I often think Mm -hmm. you back the people who have got the most to lose in terms of that. They're going to be very resistant to change if new competitors are coming in. And I don't see that same resistance from Australia, actually. Um, As a large energy exporter, we've got new energy competitors globally, uh, not just in fossil fuels, but now we've got countries that haven't been in fossil fuel production who can produce green fuels mm. and green energy mm. and export them and mm. may become, so it may become an increased competitive environment for us.
1: I imagine that, uh, that you had something to do with that, uh, that paragraph, uh, Tenet. Right, so is it safe to say you assume, that I can assume that you agree with it?
0: Uh, I agree with Paul. I agree with Innes. Um, But the one thing I would add is that I raised this question of green iron uh, production looking economically very logical to us here in Australia while I was in China uh, and said also that it was hard to see that happening at its full scale without a deeper economic partnership with China because they buy most of the iron ore we produce today. Uh, and uh, we would certainly need uh, their their co-investment and um full cooperation if uh, that trade were to turn to uh, supplying a semi-finished product for um, as an input for a, a transformed chinese steel industry and so i said like what it, what do you guys reckon does does that logic look persuasive in china and I have to say, I could detect no familiarity with that economic logic at this point, even from people who I perceived as incredibly switched on in um, broader economic issues. So I think that if if we want to make a go of that um, that flavor of energy superpower vision, where we're onshoring parts of energy intensive production rather than just changing the energy resource that that goes on the ships out of here we've got to talk to our potential customers and partners a lot and um and hold their hand and 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 maybe learn from them if some of the things that seem obvious to us maybe aren't so obvious um because yeah the um the the people who'd have to be a part of it currently seem to think I oh, don't know you know, technology will solve something and hydrogen will get much cheaper to ship than it is today and life will go on much as it uh, did before. So
1: you don't think you changed their paradigm in one conversation, did it? I definitely <laughs> did not. <laughs> we say in this podcast that we talk about through the issues of the day, the ones that are, are facing us and there's always luck going on, and we've ended up having quite a long uh, long conversation today. I think it's been fantastic. Uh, it's uh it's good to get your views on what EVs are gonna to mean to to our economy and to the transition, to talk about the change of attitudes around the around the world and that's worth keeping an eye on if you're a business person. Uh the the electricity cost was a large large conversation, so they, or energy costs was a large part of the conversation. And then I think, you know, Paul's comment uh, towards the end there about look at new solutions, you know, if you're going to to consider what the opportunities are in this In this transitioning economy, uh, particularly from a business point of view, think of new solutions. Look at the whole value chain. See it differently. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Tennant. It's always good fun. Glad to be back in one piece.
0: They let me out.
1: (laughs) But you didn't change their paradigm. So, you know, back you go. And uh, and Paul, uh, thank you very much. Great comments today.
2: Yeah, thanks, James, and thanks, Tennant. Yeah, good to have you back, Tennant. And uh, maybe we agreed too much today. Maybe we're we're drinking the same Kool-Aid, but um, uh, but it was uh, was a really really good conversation, and uh, I'm sure we'll have other problems to solve next month.
1: Let's solve them in one month's time. Thank you, gentlemen. See See you next month. See you soon. Thanks.